0: Yesterday afternoon, someone knocked at the door and told me, hey, would you like to get access to fiber optics, uh, to your place? And I was was quite surprised because I thought, I'm in the middle of a big city, high-tech city, and still here, still in a very urban and developed area. I didn't have access uh, to fiber optics at my place. Why is it taking so long? Why does it take so long to, to go live?
1: Hi, my name is Gareth Thomas from Tangible Computing. This is a podcast about where computing meets the real world, from the fast and the complex, like controlling an engine, to the imaging of a patient or even scheduling an airline. We want to trigger your curiosity by talking to the people behind the scenes of making the modern world happen, deepening your understanding of where computation plays a role in our everyday lives and motivating you to help engineer a better world.
2: I'm Andrew Rutgers, co-host of Tangible Computing. And now, let's find out how software drives the world. Today on Tangible Computing, we have Luis
1: Oliveira, a Portuguese entrepreneur who is living in the Netherlands, and he has his own company called Aircision. Welcome Luis to the show.
0: Welcome, guys. Nice to be here.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. We've been wanting to get you on for a while. And maybe to kick things off, Luis, maybe you can tell us a fun fact about yourself, something that not many people know about you.
0: One of the most uh, surprising facts, maybe, or that causes surprise in a lot of people, is uh, that I'm technically an introvert. So it's, uh, I'd say, over the last th- these last two years that I've been working for, uh, for a season, it has been quite easy for me to, to actually be in places where I don't know anyone. But as soon as somebody asks, so what do you do? And then I can be talking for hours and hours. And that's, I'll say quite, it is at least a fun fact for me. It's an important skill
2: as a CEO of a (laughs) a startup that you've just got to be able to go out and talk to everyone and say what your company does.
0: Indeed, I I heard a few times. So I've been pitching in front of hundreds of people, uh, especially before Corona. And and many people are, uh, when they get to know me better, they are surprised. Oh, I thought you were a very extroverted person.
1: It's part of the thing of having your own company, right? And and learning it. So there's moments where you have to become a non-extrovert and parts where you you have to be an extrovert, right? But that, that kind of leads me to, so you said you did some pitching about your company. So what is actually Aircision? Tell us a little bit more about that.
0: So at Aircision, we are providing optical wireless communication systems. So in a uh, simple terms, it seems very complex, but in simple terms, we use light propagation through the air to transmit data, to transmit bits. And uh, our, our solution is, I'd say quite uh, impressive as uh, we can achieve very high data rates over long distances.
1: So what kind of applications do you, would someone use your solutions?
0: So our main target is the telecom operators. So for, for you and I to be talk here today, a lot of Data has to be flowing from your locations to uh, the location where I am and vice versa. For that, and in order for this uh, meeting, for this call uh, to happen, we need a lot of data and a lot of capability of the telecom infrastructure to be capable of handling all this data transfer. This is what we do. So we are helping telecom uh, providers and operators to reach more people in an economically and and technically uh, feasible way.
1: So when you say in an economical way, is this meaning that you don't need to like dig up streets and put fiber cables? Is that, is that a bit of the reason? Tell me more about the economics of this.
0: So let me, let me just give you an example. Yesterday afternoon, I was at my place in the center of Eindhoven, which is an urban area. Someone knocked me at the door and told me, Hey, would you like uh, to get uh, access to fiber optics uh, to your place? And I was, I was quite surprised because I thought, I mean, I'm in the middle of a big city, high-tech city, where obviously a lot of people uh, are working from home and still here, still in a very urban and developed area. I didn't have access uh, to fiber optics at my place. Why is it taking so long? Why does it take so long to to roll out fiber is because it's quite an expensive process. So uh, the companies uh, need to ask permissions to the city halls. They need to hire the installation companies. They need to dig fiber in the ground uh, throughout, all over the city, the street, until they get to a household. In our case, that's exactly what we um, are bringing in, is with our solution, there is no need for digging. There is no need uh, for spending months, sometimes in many cases even years, to reach out to the the households and, and connect people.
1: So so tell me a little bit more how that works. So is you, you kind of go to um, two tall buildings and you kind of install a laser and then based on the, a bit of calibration, then you enable c- communication. Is that how, how I should think about this?
0: Yes, it's, I think it's quite, quite as simple as, as you mentioned. So our devices are very quickly set up. So we only need to go to the top of buildings or to towers, communication towers. And the only thing we need to do is to attach our devices Two devices, or one device in each point, and then in a couple of minutes, uh, hours, I'll say, we can establish the, the loop.
1: And so, what other types of area applications do you see this? So, you mentioned like the Eindhoven city center, but does this also apply to maybe more rural areas where it's it's a little bit harder to get that fiber optics, that last mile? Is that also a use case for you?
0: Yes, so the definitely our our mission in our company is connect the unconnected. So we see, and uh, it's quite it, it's quite surprising for us that in 2021 there are still 45% of people in the world they don't have access to internet. This is this sounds crazy uh, to to me, to, and I would say to everyone of us that lives uh, in in developed countries because we we have at least some sort of connection for, uh, I'd say for at least a few decades now, but there are still 45 percent unconnected. And uh, having that in mind, and if you look at the, the world map, then uh, obviously we see that the unconnected are especially in uh, underdeveloped countries and in places, in areas where there are not urban. So uh, this 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 definition can change a lot according to the country and the, the area you are. So to answer your question more direct, directly, is uh, yes, we can help the telecom companies to get an economic, an economical solution that allows them to provide connectivity to more areas, broader areas, especially outside of the of the the main cities.
2: One of the the immediate ones that comes up when I think about visible light communication is how does it perform in rain or fog?
0: Yeah. Yes, it's, a, it's always a great question. So uh, I don't know if you know, but for example, there are companies such as uh, SpaceX or Facebook or uh, Google that have all these projects to uh, use these uh, lasers, let's say laser communication. Uh, it's called free space optics. Uh, this laser communication in space, so outside of planet Earth. And that's obviously because there are no atmospheric conditions, such as the ones you mentioned, rain. and and fog and so on. And that, I would say, has been one of the main challenges of uh, uh, free space optics as an industry, to find its use cases in um, ground applications. And there are companies out there trying to do it for the last 20 years, at least. But in our view is today, we have reached a moment that is the right timing for, for free space optics and why? Uh, Because we are finally in a place where the competitive solutions, I would say, and I can talk about uh, radio frequency systems, particularly the higher and higher frequencies. And these systems also start to get uh, affected by uh, weather conditions. They also start to have to narrow their beams in order to to transmit these higher and higher data rates. But this is where Free Space Optics has a a play in our, our technology. Because by achieving the same similar link availabilities or reliability under adverse weather conditions, we can provide a lot more data. And that's just a question of of physics. We are way over on the right side of the electromagnetic spectrum. And for that reason, we can carry a lot more bits. But it's indeed indeed a very good question. In terms of our solution, we conducted recently some field tests. Where we obviously tested also the performance under different weather conditions, and we it was quite successful. So we are we are quite happy.
2: What are some of the key kind of technical challenges that Air AirCision is dealing with and trying to solve?
0: Well, definitely, we need we are aiming at providing this system for five kilometers, uh, five kilometers. I don't know if you are aware or if you ever thought about it, but if you think about a place or a building or that is five kilometers away from you, you cannot even see it from the place where you are. Right? So it's in order to uh, align these uh, two systems that we have over these considerable distances, this is quite a tough technical challenge. How can we align these two devices in a way that the, the light, the, the laser, uh, and by the way, it's invisible light, but in order for, for the light to go from uh, device A to device B, the two devices need to be perfectly aligned. And I wouldn't say hopefully, but actually one of, one of the main things in our technology is related to this. So it's uh, the capability of uh, aligning very, very precisely these two devices over uh, such a distance. And uh, hopefully it's also there where we have our key differentiator towards uh, everyone else.
2: And, and is this done live or is it like, is this done when you set the system up or is it constantly adjusting?
0: Mm-hmm. There are two things. So uh, the first one is when you set up the two devices uh, and that obviously requires a first alignment. So uh, that takes uh, a bit more time, let's say. But after these, uh, these two devices are aligned, we have a closed loop. So uh, both systems are co- constantly uh, providing feedback to the others in terms of where the photons, where the light is going, and they readjust automatically. So this second alignment is, let's say, a, a permanent one.
1: So how did you come up with this idea? Was it that one day that you went doing some volunteer work or something and, and you, you said, this is crazy, I don't have access to my internet and I can't get my emails and I want to change the world? Tell me a little bit of how, how did you get to this idea?
0: So indeed, uh, I, I have indeed uh, volunteering experience. I've been in, in a... Mozambique, 2018, working in a school project, but it wasn't, I mean, yes, I've, I've seen the hassle and in Mozambique, I'll be in, in almost every corner of the streets, I'll see people send selling megabytes of data. So that's something we don't have here, but for me, for example, I would in almost every single corner, I'll just buy hundred megabytes uh, of data so that I could eventually call my friends, my family. But I wouldn't say that it started there because it was only, obviously, I, I started to get the feeling, yes, um, and I, I always have that feeling that I feel I feel the need to give back. I feel a privilege in the, by living here in the Netherlands, in Europe, and the world out there doesn't have the same privilege that I do. For sure, that, that was an important part of the story of, of starting a, a telecommunications company. But second, I would say, I was also inspired by a great story about Mo Ibrahim, uh, and Mo Ibrahim was an entrepreneur in the, in the early nineties who decided to give back to his country, give back to a continent actually in Africa. And he was crazy. he was seen as crazy by everyone, uh, but he basically built the first, today we call it the one g So the, the, the first network of mobile communications in uh, 10 different countries. He did that with only the private money, so it was the first telecommunications company ever in history that started with the private money, with investors. And by doing that, we all I think we all know, let's say the the externalities of having a a good a good or at least a, a good communications network, access to calls and text messages. And I was really inspired by by his story. Yeah. I mean, he eventually became one of the wealthiest uh, people on earth, but that wasn't his point. His point was to, uh, the main problem he was solving was uh, the fact that he knew people that had to walk 10 kilometers or 20 kilometers per day, just to talk with their families, just to see their families. And uh, by providing access to a mobile phone and then access to uh, phone calls, he solves this quite a big problem. And this was already 30 years ago.
1: You mentioned that you were in Mozambique teaching. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you were teaching and how did that happen?
0: Yes, so in uh, 2017, I was invited to be part of the organization called Engineers Without Borders. That's maybe a fun fact because I'm not an engineer. <laughs> so I was probably one of the, <laughs> one of the few people uh, in the organization that, that didn't have that background. Nevertheless, there was this project called the Schools of the Future, where the goal uh, was to incentive and to promote engineering uh, as a whole in an underdeveloped country, uh, Mozambique, uh, where kids tend to leave uh, school really early and that they don't, they don't have the intention to follow an university course and, and especially not to follow engineering courses. And uh, that's, that's how it started. I'm a Portuguese speaker. Mozambique is also a Portuguese-speaking country. Nevertheless, my role there, I gave it a bit of my touch, personal touch there. And uh, besides the, the workshops on, on engineering, and uh, which were quite funny. I mean, we, we had kids building uh, radios and, uh, and uh, knowing what's behind, what's behind it. But I also gave a little bit of my touch, and uh, I also talked about uh, personal uh, uh, finance, which I thought was quite an interesting and correlated um, topic there because most of the kids, they decide not to go to university because of the costs in, in involved in, uh, in going to the university. And it's not because of the real costs. But it's just the perception that going to the university will cost so much to my parents, to my family. And I, I, I should start working as, as soon as possible so that uh, yeah, the family can uh, survive. That was not the case. I contacted multiple universities I understood where were exactly the courses of the cost of the fees. Uh, I also, obviously together with the team, but we also create this connection between the schools and the universities uh, so that uh, it would make it way more easier for the the high school students to proceed to to go to the university. And also we created uh, scholarships in order to support it. Yeah, it was... Fantastic experience, uh, obviously, and uh, but it's also an, an eye, eye-opening, in many ways, an eye-opening uh, uh, experience.
1: I think you've got a very interesting background. So you're Portuguese entrepreneur in the Netherlands, but you said you weren't an engineer. Can you maybe tell us a bit of the milestones or your superhero story of how you got to where you are?
0: Yes, of course. I, ha- I have a background in, in finance, economics in finance. I started my career in a very corporate place at Deloitte in uh, Portugal, Lisbon. Uh, I was part of the mergers and acquisitions department. So most of my work was behind the desk, behind the laptop, wearing my suit and tie (laughs) for some reason. Uh, I think nobody ever will understand.
2: None of us are wearing suits and ties in the interview at the moment for the (laughs) listeners. (laughs)
0: Back in 2017, four years ago, I thought that it was time to uh, try something different, a different environment, uh, and that's uh, not only, let's say, an international environment, but also a different work environment. And uh, that's when I moved to the Netherlands. I joined High Tech Excel, and High Excel is a, an accelerator of startups. To be honest, I didn't know much about what an accelerator of startups was <laughs> before before I joined and before I, I went to the interviews. But right after, it was quite a different environment. So uh, it was, many times I call it a crazy environment. It's highly, highly dynamic. A lot of investors always coming in. The entrepreneurs, uh, we have about uh, six, seven, eight teams, or even more every time. And my job there was uh, to support these entrepreneurs. Most of them were professors at universities or uh, engineers or hardcore engineers, let's say. And they didn't have, let's say, the business human and, and my role there was obviously to help them to create a business out of technology, very interesting technologies, always high tech. These companies were from all over the world, from uh, Mexico, from South Korea, from Poland and so on and so on and so on. And now I look back and in a way I was exactly doing this, the same job. I was advising other people, I was advising companies, I was uh, supporting. But just in a complete different environment and without, let's say all the bureaucracy uh, that is uh, very common of uh, of the corporate world and the formalities. And I was really excited about it. I think yeah, it was one of the best things or the the things that I liked the most doing in in my life. But that also sparked me to to create my own business. Because until then I was uh, supporting, I was advising, I was helping and I saw I saw how hard it is and how hard it was to build companies, to go through all the challenges, to keep the motivation many times. But for me, it was a time I want to do this. I want to put my hands also into into a business. So in late 2018, still at High Tech Excel and still in their environment, I started creating a, a team. We actually started with a partnership with one of the largest research institutes in the world. We licensed the technology. And the first uh, steps, the first months were definitely about building a team, but also defining the business case, validation, 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 understanding what are the problems and how uh, can we create solutions that solve those problems. And uh, I would say to, to, to finish the, this, this is a short story, but uh, the last two years and a half were I'm sure the best experience my life, in professional, a professional way, but also uh, probably on a personal way.
1: So, so Luis, it seems that you've got a more of a financial background, but yet you still ventured into creating a company in a very engineering world. Can you maybe share a few words on how that combination of your financial background, how it plays nicely with a team of maybe more technical engineering yeah. people?
0: Yes, uh, definitely. I think there was there was also one one of the um, things I always had in the back of my mind when I, I decided to follow this uh, this route and to study finance and to start working finance. Uh, I think finance and what I like about finance is it's for me it's about assessing the value of something. It's it's about assessing the value, in this case of a company, uh, and that's that's what I was doing at at Deloitte. That's what I studied. It was basically. How can we see in a, the most objective way possible, which is uh, uh, through money, through numbers, through euros? How can we assess creation of value? And, uh, and I think after starting this especially, I think th- those, those skills or that knowledge helped me a lot because I understand, for example, from investors' point of view, but also from customers' point of view, it will always be about how can we create value and uh, how can we measure it and how can we show it? And uh, and by having this, let's say, financial mindset of uh, that the, 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 the creation of value has to be superior to the, the cost of things. I think I think that helps a lot in the decision-making, in, a, in a, obviously in a building the, the business case, but also in terms of team. And you asked um, about the relationship with, say, more the, the, the technical people in, a, in the company. And I think it also helps them quite a lot. I usually say that if they cannot explain to me what they are doing in uh, uh, one minute or two minutes or maybe five minutes, uh, then it's also because they don't have that super sharp and clarity on, uh, on uh, what they are doing. And that kind of works, I think, quite well in, uh, in our team, uh, in the sense that by the fact that I make the simplest questions probably, they have to also explain in the simplest way. And if I don't understand, and it goes obviously the, the both, both ways, but if I don't understand, then it's obviously they still need to, they realize that this, there is still something to do to improve and to, to change.
1: So, so in your experience, Luis, so you mentioned that it's quite a difficult job assessing the value of a company. Can you maybe double-click a little bit on that and go a little bit deeper of what are common ways that companies put a price tag on their value? I'd be curious to know how you did it or some common techniques that are generally well-known.
0: Yes, of course. So there was something also that I learned after joining Excel. is this corporate world is very very different in the way we valuations and the way we look at businesses why because a big difference between a startup or a scale-up and uh, a corporate that is out there for decades is the that one has a big history and past uh, and the other one doesn't and uh, the the most let's say commonly used model to to assess value of a company it's called the discounted cash flow so the discounted cash flow it's basically about looking into the past, determining trends in the, for, for the revenues, for the cost structure for for the team, and then deriving projections into the future. So the the future is based on things that happened. Usually we take five years, the last five years. We can use more, it depends on the business, on the on the case, on the industry, but that's that's the commonly used. So we, we project the revenues, the costs, look into the future. And then we determine how much cash is uh, the company going to generate every single year in the future. The final thing we do is, and in order to get to the value today, is uh, we need to discount the all these ca- future cash flows to the present. And that's how we come up to a, a number saying uh, X. This company is worth X because this is the, the cash that it will generate um, in the future. This is... Let's say in the beautiful world of corporate, <laughs> where there is past, where there is history, um, there, there, there is obviously then a, mo- other different techniques that you can use to also compare with this uh, first one. In the startup world, there is no past. So, uh, in the startup world, there is no stability of the business. When, uh, so, it's impossible basically to use a discount cash flow model. It is, nevertheless, it's uh, it's quite interesting that investors and uh, in this environment, the business plan showing all the projections, uh, financial projections for the future. It's still a request. We still need to work on it. And we still need to to show this is what's going to happen in five, maybe 10 years from now. It's just part of the process. However, in terms of valuation methods for startups, the the two main ones commonly used, one is through multiples. So it's about looking at these project, future projections of revenues and costs and uh, apply a multiple saying, okay, if you expect that this company will generate certain level of revenue, we, we've seen other companies that based on the same level of revenue, they were worth 10 times. So uh, what we do is we apply the 10 multiple to uh, the revenue that it had. A second one, which is, I'd say it's more, it's, it's also yeah commonly used. It's about looking... At uh, similar transactions. So, uh, for example, Aircision is in the telecommunication companies. What investors in Aircision do is they they look at uh, companies that were recently acquired or that were recently at least or that that raised recently additional funding and they check for which at which valuations were these companies or at at which valuation did these companies raise the, the funding. And based on that, then at least they have a feeling on. The valuation of the company Air season is around this
1: uh, number. So, following along those those lines, Luis, So now that you've so you've, you've had running your company for for some time now, are there any lessons learned on the maths behind running a company, the things that people should look out for when engaging with investors and when assessing the value of a company? Can you share some of those lessons learned?
0: i just explained how valuation of companies happen and 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 how how investors look at this it's not it it doesn't make it easier for me to have have conversations with investors and going through all our plans and showing this is what we plan to do this is what we want to do this is why we need this money what happens most of the times is that simply investors will look at different things investors will have different questions so maybe a big learning is i cannot adapt to all the investors that are out there and many times they have the different questions it requires always a long time to provide the documentation to go back to answer in the to fill in their forms because they many times they also have different forms and uh th- there is it's 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 always many of them told me luis uh, you should be asking for the double you, right now you need the double and at the same time other investors were telling me luis you should cut the in half the amount of money you are raising. And uh, so the, the main conclusion for me is that uh, yeah, definitely we should uh, do our plan, come up with with the numbers, with uh, what do we need, we'll, um, do multiple scenarios, scenario, best case scenario, best case scenario, worst case scenario. And based on that, define the strategy. This is the funding we need to execute this plan. Personal, personal one. Don't, don't accept to cut that that funding or to to reduce that funding, and still trying to do the same plan. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. It's still, it's still um, an exciting. It's still an exciting process for me. It's something I like to do. But it's it's definitely it's definitely hard to let's say deal with all these different interests, uh, views, uh, perspectives. I would say yeah, the Netherlands is relatively. We we're just talking about underdeveloped countries, so it's relatively the world. A country where uh, you have access to funding, but it's still different, or still also quite quite far from uh, other countries where where there is there is more funding availability.
1: Um, so, so what is the most fun part of your job?
0: Uh, for, for sure, the most part of my my position, I would say, is to deal with with the people. So, uh, as a as CEO of Persija. For me, my biggest job is to make sure that, and at least to try, uh, that people can achieve uh, high performance, but that they also, do, they also feel good about what they are doing, and that they also feel that they are uh, developing themselves uh, at the company. And I would say the thing that for sure gives me uh, more fun to do is to talk with them, talk um, many times individually with them, understanding what are the things that really drive them, and then my role, in my role, I try to do as much as I can to allow them to develop new ideas, to d- um, do different things uh, outside of their role. And, uh, and, and, and for me, that's that's for sure the, the, the thing, the human aspect. The second one is obviously this, uh, all, all these uh, many times we call it this uh, gaming with, with investors, with companies, with a strategy about uh, getting the company up and up and up. Um, that's for sure. Also, one of the, the funniest elements because it's uh, our list that creates a lot of energy. That uh, that gives me a lot of adrenaline. And uh, so then maybe to to wrap things up, Luis,
1: to, to what, what is something that you're going to be learning
0: next? I'm I'm reading a book called the uh, the Prosperity Paradox, and uh, it has to do again maybe related to almost all the conversation we had today. Which is related to how can um, underdeveloped economies um, prosper. How can they converge to the rest of the world and i really recommend that book by the way and uh and that's something that i've been more and more and more not only reading but also listening to i listen to uh, many podcasts and the main idea of of the book i'm still uh, half of it but half the way but the main idea of the book is that only through innovation only through really disruptive innovation countries can can converge to to the rest of the world. Uh, It has quite some strong messages there about the AIDS that uh, over the last 50 decades and uh, trillions of dollars went to uh, the the, the most um, underdeveloped countries, the, the 40 most underdeveloped countries in the world. And if you look at those 40 today, they are worse. They are worse than they were 50 years, 40 years ago. And then it has a lot of examples of economies, countries. Where one, it's never one innovation, but it's at least there were some catalyzers. There were some companies, some entrepreneurs in industries such as telecom that then created the the need for a better education and the the need for better health and the need for all other services and areas, transportation, and so on and so on of the society and of the country to also develop itself. So that's something I'm really interested about. And maybe one day I'll be also, uh, say, um, trying to, to do my best to uh, help those those communities, those countries to converge.
1: And then maybe just one last question, Luis. How can people reach you?
0: <laughs> yeah, follow um, Air Season. There are also a lot of news that are being shared every week, at least. Yeah. Um, I say LinkedIn, feel free to, to reach
1: out. This is a great place to stop our conversation today. I wanted to thank you for listening to Tangible Computing. While we have your attention, we really want this podcast to trigger your curiosity and motivate you to engineer a better world. So let us know if you have any ideas for future topics and speakers, or even how to make this podcast better.
2: Just send us an email to tangible at tangiblecomputing.com.